Right. Um, welcome, everyone, to Fastlift Podcast 65. Um, I've got here a very special guest, uh, Mr. Menno Henselman. Uh, Menno, thank you for joining me. How are you? My pleasure. Okay. Good. Yeah, it's pretty steady here now in Brazil, although uh, the, the, the rules are a bit different from week to week. That's, that's uh, you know, oh, right. life these days. <laughs> How restrictive is it over there? Uh, well, this past uh, week or two weeks, it's been pretty much stuff's only open for a couple hours a day. Uh, only until eight and in weekends everything's closed but they're actually going to open back up a bit more now okay right so i'll do a quick sorry i'll I'll do a quick introduction to menno um for those of you might not be familiar with him for those of you follow my work you should be familiar with menno he's very much one of the forefront runners of the uh, evidence-based crowd um he uh got his msc from warwick which is just about an hour down the road from me (laughs) um he has a high degree of emphasis on sustainability and uh he questions a lot of traditional culture in um, the modern mainstream evidence-based uh, crowd. So as a result of that, he has somewhat different views, which I find really refreshing because um, he doesn't just get stuck in convention. So things like full body training and high nutrient density approaches. Um, also, he runs Henselman's personal training certification program. So I think uh, I've given a good brief summary. Is that about mm-hmm. right? Sure, yeah. Cool, awesome. Right, so what we're going to cover today is... Um, keto dieting for contest prep but as i know menno isn't um doesn't exclusively lend himself to just one methodology for diet so it it really should be more accurately termed nutrient density nutrient dense approach perhaps for um, contest prep so i wanted to delve into that um right so i thought if we um start off with just general advantages for keto of keto for fat loss in a contest prep context um i'll let you carry on Mm -hmm. sure yeah i think the main reasons to do a ketogenic diet, uh, especially in contest prep, uh, depends a bit on what, what contest prep is for, but for physique sports, uh, appetite suppression would probably be the number one benefit. Like for a lot of people, it's simply uh, relatively easy to restrict energy intake. Mm. Uh, now it is, you know, by definition, a restrictive diet in that your net carbohydrate intake is, uh, has to be at a certain level, otherwise you simply won't be in ketosis. And even protein intake has to be kept in check uh, to at least some degree. But most people still find that it's uh, compared to non-ketogenic approaches, if you respond okay to a ketogenic diet, uh, it's easier to go into ketosis. In fact, uh, there have been a number of studies the past two years or so on um, people that try to bulk on a ketogenic diet. And they found that it's, it's almost impossible to equate energy intake between the ketogenic and the non-ketogenic group. Like you can just see in the results, if you calculate net metabolizable energy density change in the body, um, there must have been an energy deficit in the keto group, even though they were trying to bulk. So that is, you know, it's basically a disadvantage for some people when trying to put on mass, but in contest prep, for a lot of people, it's, it's a very big advantage. And especially some people, um, the people that also get more cognitive benefits and generally feel really good in ketosis, um, also not having much of an appetite is a really big plus. And I said, that, that's probably the big one. I saw a study which came out recently, the last, it was 21st of January this year, which also pointed to similar things. And that they, it was similar to the one you've talked about in the past where they tried to get people to eat quite a lot on keto, but essentially they just couldn't match it. And the end result was they ended up mm-hmm. not gaining much muscle, but at the same time dropping quite a lot of fat. So like you're saying. It ended yeah, up- there was a recent study where they, um, they gained the same amount of strength Mm. but didn't gain lean mass, uh, but lost fat. Yeah. Whereas the other group basically gained some lean mass and didn't lose fat, 
which strongly suggests that the keto group just ended up in energy deficit. And the lean mass was a bit contentious because they measured it with uh, bioelectrical impedance analysis, yeah. which is notorious for confounding water and muscle because it's, you know, it technically both is lean mass. So the fact that the keto group lost some lean mass or didn't gain lean mass uh, doesn't mean much. It's quite normal to drop sometimes a good two kilos. In a few individuals, you can see even up to four, but I say one to two kilos for one for women, two for men. Uh, it's quite common. Most of that's water. And it also gives you the, the extra dry look, which is uh, a mixed advantage. Like it's, it's good to look, you look leaner. And especially individuals that are commonly struggle with bloating and abdominal distension, they typically find that keto diet, they have a more tighter midsection. It's also drier, a bit drainier. Um, but it also means you're not as full. So uh, that poses a bit of a conundrum in, in contest prep, and especially for the peak week, if you want to do a carb load or not. Because uh, ideally you're dry and carb loaded. Uh, but in keto, at least you'll be consistently dry. Just to come back on that, uh, on that point, um, sort of the counterpoint to that, people say that the appetite suppression and the hunger effects aren't consistent right across the board. And it's almost used as a way to say sort of no to keto or to put it down. What has your ex actual experience been on that? Because we're, presumably you work with people who have lower carb approaches, just from your experience. I'd say uh, it definitely varies. And we know in research in terms of both the psychology and the physiology of a ketogenic diet vary a lot between individuals, like much more than most other diets. So for example, just the amount of carbohydrate restriction that's required to enter ketosis or what we typically define as nutritional ketosis, which is 0.5 millimolar ketosis or BHB. And some people can go into that on 180 grams of net carbs. Like that's been documented in scientific research. A lot. So, and I think my fiance is actually one of those individuals that goes into ketosis really quickly because she wanted a keto test the uh, day after eating sushi. And that day was pretty much a ketogenic day, but the day before was sushi, so very much not ketogenic. And she was actually in mild ketosis. Uh, and for me, it, it takes like a good two days of severe uh, carbide restriction before I enter ketosis, which is more normal. Um, so just like for appetite suppression, I think it varies a lot per individual. There's also one study showing that um, some individuals, or on average, it takes three weeks to obtain that benefit. Right. And keto adaptation in general takes like two weeks before you really get those benefits. Um, there, there is some, it's, it's a bit contentious how long it really takes. Like the three weeks is actually a longer one. Some people also use it as a bit of a cop-out in the keto crowds, like in a long-term study. And they say, well, how long was it? Well, three months. Well, they weren't keto adapted. It's like, ah, three months, I think you're pretty keto adapted. Maybe, you know, there are still some adaptations that continue, mm -hmm. but uh, most of it in, happens in the first two weeks if you look at biomarkers. Okay, great. Um, um, would, you, would you agree that um, another advantage is potentially the decision fatigue? Whereas if you're doing sort of a, um, a if it fits your macros, flexible calorie approach where you got to, you've got to restrict something, calories, uh, but in this case, you're restricting potentially carbs and food choices. Would you agree that there's a case to be made for decision fatigue being playing a role? Uh, decision fatigue in terms of um, like making fewer choices on ketogenic diet or? You mean yeah. So essentially having the rules in place to say that, well, we can't eat X, Y, and Z foods uh, rather than saying, well, eat what you like within a certain level of macros and calories. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Yeah, it can be beneficial for sure. I think in general, having a, a sort of a, a set plan or a real clear approach, a system mm -hmm. is really beneficial. 
um, that doesn't necessarily have to be keto. Um, I think decision fatigue might be a little bit better because there are some studies that find cognitive benefits and also a general literature that finds uh, cognitive health benefits like for Alzheimer's, migraines, epilepsy. Epilepsy is really well documented. So it's possible that some people just feel better uh, in ketosis. And in fact, that's been documented in the majority of research. I think there are five studies that specifically look at mood state in ketosis and three of them find benefits and two of them don't. Okay. So again, that shows that it varies a lot per individual because some people also feel terrible. That's a fact. So most of those don't do it right. Uh, they get nutrient deficiencies and, uh, or they try it only for a few days and like, oh, this is terrible. And then they go into that. It's like ketogenic diet is the worst diet on, on the planet. Um, but, you know, some people really just don't respond well to it. Okay. I should frame this discussion by saying that um, I've, I've only just recently started experiment with keto, but I was interested in it because I normally follow your information for training stuff. Uh, and then mm -hmm. you made an offhand comment on one of your podcasts about how you don't track, you eat ad lib. And then that sort of led me down a rabbit hole of looking at your dietary approaches. And that got me, then I realized there's all this stuff about menno and mm -hmm. low carb stuff. So I thought, wow, this is fantastic, fascinating. But I, that's why I wanted to get you on. But I, should, I suppose I should sort of frame that for people listening. Um, I'm going to be asking questions with very much a pro keto emphasis, but um, mm -hmm. I just because I just don't think there's much out there. It seems to be very combative against keto. Um, yeah, so I'd like to I think there is a bias against keto diets and in uh, evidence-based fitness, actually, in particular. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that definitely. So uh, I'd like to kind of push push against that. Um, but anyway, going back to it, so I think would you sort of summarize the advantages as mostly being to do with um, adherence? Um, and while that is generally variable, you've seen that to be a positive. Um, uh, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, adherence in general, um, like in the whole population is, is mixed. Like a meta-analysis from last year found that keto and non-keto diets have similar adherence rates. And a meta-analysis on the Atkins diet found that it's similar to other diets up to six months, but a bit worse at 12 months. But Atkins is basically a poor implementation of keto. And it was similar to Ornish diet, which is super high carb, basically zero fat. So I think it basically shows that if you become too restrictive, then it becomes detrimental. Uh, like I actually wouldn't say that the goal of a ketogenic diet, which I think a lot of people sort of think of it that way. They think a ketogenic diet's main goal is to eat as few carbs as possible. Mm. I'd rather say the aim of a ketogenic diet, a proper ketogenic diet setup, is to eat as many carbs as you can while still being in ketosis. Right. And there have been numerous studies that find that the degree of ketosis actually doesn't correlate to the benefits, not to the appetite suppression, not to adherence. Uh, one study by Harvey in 2019, I think, a really good one, master's thesis, basically five studies in one or something, found that when you have only 5% carbs, adherence is worse compared to 15 and I think 25 even. Uh, but they were, I think, still in ketosis, not sure. And so basically, I'd say that you don't want to be super, super carb restricted. You want to be just carb restricted enough. And I actually think that um, this is largely due to the, the Folek and Vinny, um, like sort of magnum opus of ketogenic dieting, where you have that graph showing the keto sweet spot, which I think goes from like one to two millimolar. And two millimolar is deep, deep ketosis. Mm. Like some people that don't really get into ketosis easily need to go super low carb to get there. And then they think because they see that graph and it's, it's really uh, Finney and Volek, which are like the grandfathers of ketogenic dieting. 
they have to go down super, super low. And I think a lot of people are actually better off with like a mild keto diet mm -hmm. and probably specifically a targeted mild ketogenic diet. Okay, great. Awesome. Okay, great. Thank you. So if we move on to um, the next thing, I wanted to just talk about any downsides or exaggerated claims. So just to sort of ground the discussion before we move on to specifics about contest prep dieting, um, are there any downsides or yeah, exaggerated claims for, for keto? Uh, yeah, on both both sides of the, the argument, uh, uh, there are a few non-exaggerated claims about ketogenic diets. Mm -hmm. Basically, it goes from people uh, it's much like vegan and carnivore diets, where you have a lot of very arduous proponents that think it's the best thing in the world, and a lot of haters that think it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> and very few people that just think of it, which is the camp I would say I'm in, as a tool that's appropriate for some people and not appropriate for others, much like intermittent fasting. So, yeah, the, 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 whether muscle growth or fat loss or uh, the appetite suppression, and pretty much anything you find very polarized views of ketosis. So yeah, it goes for pretty much everything uh, about keto. That's what I found really refreshing about the uh, your approach when I looked into it, because you really did provide that sort of balance um, of saying, well, this is appropriate for some people and here are the benefits. Uh, and it wasn't just a lot of low carb or keto zealotry. Uh, and that puts me off on either side. In fact, I think just mm -hmm. because I am so entrenched in the whole evidence-based side of things, just the word keto has, it sort of gets my, gets a little brain sensors tingling. So I have a natural aversion to it, but now looking into it more, particularly with your, your, your stuff, um, it's very balanced. So, you, so it's really useful. Um, all right. So if we look at um, sort of criticisms and one of the areas that I wanted to talk about with you was this idea that um, long-term keto will cause um, glycogen uh, depletion and, or maybe a lack of um, the ability to uptake glycogen or keep glycogen full, leading to a less pleasing look as well as performance worries. Um, for bodybuilding. Um, that's something which I'm still not really sure about yet, so I'd love your clarification on that. Um, what, what do you think? And is there a need for refeeds periodically or what? Yeah, I mean, you, you will have lower glycogen storage levels. Um, a lot of it's also simply lower insulin levels, which uh, insulin has an anti-nyrotretic effect. Basically, if you have lower insulin levels, your kidneys uh, retain less water or sodium and therefore water. So, um, that's also why you look drier, but a bit less full. So it's mixed, you know, like women typically like it. Men is depends on whether they look at their abs or their shoulders. You know, if they look at their abs, they're like, Akito is great. If look at their shoulders, like, I think I look bigger with more carbs. Uh, kind of like bulking and cutting. Uh, the effect is very similar, actually. If you're like, if you diet high carbs, you know you look different in energy surplus versus deficit. That's also kind of keto does that times two. So uh, visually, it's, it's, it's a mixed effect. Uh, Performance-wise, it, it's also true that you're going to maintain a, an equilibrium level of lower glycogen saturation. Like, but it's not nearly as much as most people think. And we don't have much good data on this. We have one study, I think by Volek et al, on endurance cyclists. And they found that glycogen levels stabilized after two or three weeks at about 70 or 60 to 70% of baseline. So not nearly the level of depletion needed to impair performance, which is typically well below 50%. Uh, and basically it has to run empty to really uh, to make sure there's really no fuel to, to move. And research in general has, has been, uh, actually have a review on this that we're trying to publish this year uh, on the, the, the effect of carbohydrate intake on strength training performance. And it's surprisingly uh, non-existent basically. So 
the, the amount of carbs you eat, whether pre-workout or in the long term, has very, very little effect on performance. And in keto also, we now have a small dozen studies that look at keto versus higher carb and by and large found no effects on performance. There's one specific type of performance that's consistently impaired or not even consistently, but sometimes impaired. And that's strength endurance, like Wingate tests, uh, most like team sports, Soccer is probably eh, not, so, not so much a great idea. Tennis, also probably not a great idea. On the other hand, CrossFit and Taekwondo seem to be okay. Gymnastics seems okay. Uh, endurance training, like marathons, long distance uh, stuff, seems entirely okay, because you can rely on um, fatty acids as well. But and strength training, basically stuff that's uh, intermittent enough and more has more concentric muscle actions, doesn't really rely on that much glucose. Like many people think you do a workout and you're sort of empty, but really you're looking at 20% depletion. I think the highest in literature is 39% depletion. And that's like high volume for one muscle group. So 20% is more common. Some studies look at really just a few percent. So the, really the amount of depletion you get from a workout is not that large. And then afterwards, your body has the glycerol backbone of triglycerides from a lot of the fat that you eat. The Cori cycle, which basically recycles lactate produced during exercise to back to glucose, um, and still some supply of glucose from the diet. Uh, and if needed, which is generally undesirable, but gluconeogenesis by converting protein to glucose. Interesting. I find it interesting what you said about the, the lower insulin in general uh, with people who are keto dieting and leading to a flatter look. I found when I was competing, uh, when I was doing a contest prep a couple of years back, um, I, it was very difficult to flatten me out. I remained full even on very low calories, even though I was eating relatively high carbs. And I think I'm probably an insulin over-secretor um, more than likely. So that may well have some sort of explanation. Um, would you consider a training style to be different on keto, on a contest prep? Is that, would that relate to the level of glycogen that would you not want to pursue high volume training, for example? Uh, it might be. Typically research find that it doesn't really matter, uh, especially if you do a targeted ketogenic diet and you still have some carbs in there. Uh, so targeted basically means you have extra carbs pre and post workout, which is you know, 10, 10 grams or so, 10 gram net carbs. Uh, it can be just veggies, fruits, like it doesn't have to be dextrose, which is what a lot of people assume. Um, I don't think it really matters, but it would be an argument to have high frequency training, which is typically what I err towards anyway, because the glycogen depletion that you get from training is muscle specific. Like one muscle, because of limitations in the enzymes, cannot use the glycogen of another muscle. So if you do, you know, 40 sets of biceps in one workout, which would be extreme in any case. No if you do that, yeah, if you do that, that's probably going to be dubious in, in ketosis if you have low glycogen stores to begin with. But if every day you do, you know, six or seven sets, which is the same weekly average, that may be more manageable. Now, typically, probably these amounts would be cut in half from a realistic perspective. Um, but basically, if you can get that resynthesis every time, and you're stabilized around 60% and you have a little bit of depletion, you recycle, it's probably easier than having like one workout where you really push the limits uh, and then you know a week of rest. So I'd say high frequency training and low carb diets should uh, go well hand in hand. Presumably that might have a slightly beneficial effect in terms of fat burning across the week, maybe? Uh, it might. Research generally doesn't find, like overall in the literature of fat loss, if you equate energy intake and protein intake, it's the same in keto and non-keto conditions. Um, so I wouldn't really um, 
yeah, I'd say it's probably the same. Like the differences are so marginal that they're within the arrow of non-adherence and the like. Yeah. Great, awesome. Um, so awesome, right? So if we sort of like summarize that section by, by just saying that um, there probably are proponents on either side of being very, very anti-keto, very, very pro-keto. Hopefully we're trying to provide a balanced view for people here. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, as we said in the first section, it's very good in the sense that there's, there's adherence to hunger, uh, better adherence, better hunger levels. So that's really one of the main benefits. Um, okay. And in terms of criticisms regarding keto leading to lower glycogen levels, it probably this is a small effect, but it's relatively constant after a while. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'd also say that uh, depending on what you compete in the, and your weight class, the loss of water can also be a benefit. Um, like for a contest prep, you typically do water cut anyway, so you might get the same effect even if you stay higher carb. If you do a carb load, it kind of negates the effect anyway. But especially for powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting, uh, keto is actually a really big advantage because you can drop like two kilos without energy restriction and you know make weight with two kilo more muscle. I think in general, um, I dare say, compared to bodybuilders, powerlifters and Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters in particular, are a little bit lazy when it comes to their diets and their um, their diet, their prep. Um, they don't really go nearly as all out as they can, as they could, especially if you compare to boxers or bodybuilders in terms of their body weight. I think a lot of them are very focused on absolute strength, like just being as strong as possible, rather than relative strength, which is how they're judged. It was a Wilk score or IPF score, and really they probably should cut more weight um, yeah. via methods like ketosis and the like. I'd, I'd agree with that. I did about 12 years of competing in powerlifting, so I can relate to that. So it was when I got into <laughs> bodybuilding that I was a lot more into the diet. So yeah, awesome. Um, so uh, the next question was looking at, um, we've covered it a little bit in terms of glycogen loading, but I wanted to talk about if we delve into keto for contest prep now and just look at how we would set this up. So would we set this up in a standard ketogenic diet where we would just run it right the way through? Because um, I know you're a fan of sustainability and a lack of pulsatility. Would we go for something like a CKD, which um, I, it, it, that seems to be a popular. Um, it, seems to, it seems to have fallen out of popularity. It seems to be popular back in the day. Like I remember when I, when I first started looking into keto diets 20 years ago, my elder brother did a keto diet in about 1999 and he got shredded on it. And that was through La McDonald's approach and he used a CKD. Um, there's TKD as well, which seems to be more popular these days. And that is just having, like you said earlier, around the carbs around the workout. So I guess my question to you is, which one would be, what are the, some of the pros and cons? Which one would you personally choose if you have a standard go-to? And um, is there an argument to be made for cycling carbs versus predictability and consistency when we go back to looking at adherence, which is really the overwhelming factor? Yeah, I think historically, uh, cyclical ketogenic diet uh, has been more popular and it's much easier to sell because you can basically sell it as you get all the benefits of keto, but you still get your carbs. <laughs> and there's only been two studies, one of which unpublished and by Jacob Wilson at all. So, uh, but um, they found worse performance and also people found uh, or felt a bit worse, especially in the days after the weekend when they had weekly carb ups in the weekend. Okay. And that could be attributed to them basically going out of ketosis, which I think is what typically happens during the carb up. And then afterwards, you're not keto adapted, but you're also not on a high carb diet. 
So that would theoretically be the situation where you are most likely to both feel bad and to perform poorly. So I think that um, that makes sense. And that's been somewhat replicating the only other study we have on cyclical ketogenic diet, which was recently, uh, I think last year or 2019, on a World Health Organization higher carb diet versus cyclical keto, where they had maintenance basically in the weekends with some more carbs. And there, there was also a trend for worse performance in the keto group, again, the cyclical keto group. So I'd say overall, if you compare that with the literature on straight keto, so just keto across the whole week um, with same carb intake, uh, it's worse. And I think theoretically, uh, there's also a good argument that, um, like I said, you're not keto adapted, but also still not consuming enough carbs to actually fuel your workouts. Yeah. So um, I'm definitely not a fan of that. And like if you have methods like carb cycling, which I think Lyle McDonald popularized the most, it's been used by a few authors, but it's one of those things that a lot of people sort of looked at and thought, hey, this is interesting, but nobody actually did. Like, I don't know many people, like there were a few, I think, when it came out, but like these days, almost nobody does carb cycling. Yeah. Because well, yeah. it's super impractical. It's, especially if you do it like the, the original Lyle McDonald approach, like I, I tried some of his uh, stuff, but every day is like a new battle to figure out your meal plan and like your food choices are radically different every single day and you know if you develop cravings for some foods like oh i can't eat this today it has to be tomorrow yeah so it's just super impractical and i think a lot of people fare much better on just habits routines especially contest prep uh it's difficult enough as is so if you you know and most people are also super food obsessed anyway with their diet in contest prep so best to just keep it super steady so you don't have to think as much uh, about food or not more than you need to. Yeah, I, I, just to go back to, to what you said about um, coming out of a cyclical keto diet, you said feel bad. Um, just in case people try a CKD and they want to know what they're looking for, what do you mean by feel bad? Because I, I mean, I've not done it yet. So um, in t- yeah. is it performance, is it, do you feel groggy or what is it? Uh, similar to the keto flu, um, a lot of people experience the first up to two weeks, typically more like three days, five days max. Um, they feel a bit off, more lethargic. Uh, lethargy is probably a big one. Uh, you may also smell the keto graph more that you otherwise uh, get used to later. And um, yeah, you just feel tired. Uh, performance may not be 100% there, even though I think that's mostly mental. And it's good to realize that much of that is probably due to electrolyte deficiencies. Mm. Because in, in particular, sodium and potassium excretion rates increase the first, uh, especially two weeks. And you may just need more nutrients, especially, um, I think you see this the most in people that basically stop consuming uh, veggies or fruits, fruits, uh, maybe strawberries, the rest is hard to fit in in keto anyway. But uh, no more veggies and then also no uh, supplements. And then probably you're going to be deficient in magnesium. Um, if you don't use salt liberally, you may actually end up with hyponatremia due to lack of sodium and potassium is probably going to be pretty tricky as well so not a good mix for your health and you know there are also a lot of biochemical changes going on uh, in your body thyroid metabolism is changing uh, electrolyte balance is changing uh, pretty much your body is just learning how to adjust to the different fuel substrates and you're going to be a feel a bit off or some people do i think in general people that don't feel this at all are actually people that respond well to ketosis in general yeah I, I know what you mean about the the pulsatility approach I, I think it was the ultimate diet 2.0 uh, 
um, which was yeah. Lyle's approach, which was just a roller coaster. <laughs> it was one thing after another. Every day was a different adventure, and uh, you were everything was just yeah. It was it was quite intense. I did that for a little while, um, years and years ago, and I find it to be a very intense approach. Um, so I suppose the next thing that I wanted to discuss was, I guess it's something that we've touched upon a little bit, and it's mostly down to adherence. Um, you mentioned on, uh, on Abel's podcast a few years ago that this concept of flexible dieting, it's a nice sell. And again, it's I suppose similar to the CKD. It's a nice sell. However, the, for most people, the consistency in diet is far more powerful teaching tool for the long term, um, rather than this idea of giving them a sort of a, a carrot on a stick. Whereas that carrot then becomes the thing you're aiming for and what you're currently doing, you become unsatisfied with. So ultimately, as you progress further and further into the diet, you become less and less satisfied with the non-fun days. And then you have fun days, which you look forward to. And that's never a good situation to set yourself up for. Um, could you expand a little bit on your experience with your clients and yourself with regards to adherence and keeping more of a flat um, curve? Yeah, I'd say my experience is very much in line with the literature that finds that consistency of diet is a very strong predictor of success. And in particular, the approach of having a very different lifestyle in the midweek and the weekends uh, is kind of doomed for failure, especially in the long run. Uh, you see that is really terrible long-term adherence rates. Uh, and I think with cheat meals, and they're very easy to mess up, especially if you eat very different foods, uh, if the difference is very big from your general diet. Uh, I typically use the metaphor like if Sunday is your uh, pancake day, then Monday to Saturday are going to be your thinking about pancake day. <laughs> right. So, you know, it glorifies the, the cheat food mm. rather than saying, well, what flexible dieting should be is saying, well, if you really want those pancakes, you can fit them in your diet. Mm. And then probably you're going to try it and then you're going to see you end up hungry because you don't have the calories. But then it's good because you've learned, well, I can do this, but I don't want to. So that is with restriction. I think the, the key factor psychologically, also with keto, it's not that you're not allowed to, is that you choose not to. When you have the mindset that it's a choice, it's completely different. And I think also that why things like adherence rates in ketogenic diets are not representative of real life uh, keto approaches, because those are people that are forced, you know, randomized often yeah, in the study right. into a keto group. Mm -hmm. And I, I am a somewhat proponent of keto diets, but if you at a random point in my life put me in a keto group, like I may not want it, you know, I may not feel like going keto at that time. Mm -hmm. So if you get a random individual, you know, gen pop, um, you know, I'm very surprised they, they last more than a few days mm -hmm. because it's a radical lifestyle change. So yeah, I'd say in general, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of consistency, habits, routines. Uh, it's not sexy and it's, it's the opposite of what sells. There was a, as a, if you have a six pack and you're on Instagram, you should, well, the winning approach is clearly to post pictures of all your cheat days, of your ice cream, oh, your yeah. pop tarts, uh, and say, you know, this is what I eat and this is how I look. And you can do the same rather than show, well, the other five days I just eat broccoli and rice, like all the other bodybuilders, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is also not what I'm a fan of, but yeah. um, that's typically what, what they do, actually. Some of the most ardent proponents of flexible dieting eat the bo most boring diets. Uh, other than those you know, few occasions that they post on Instagram um, to show, basically, I think it's really uh, deceitful, actually. It's, it's clearly false advertising. Yeah, I, I do completely. It's, that's a whole other... I've come from a background of being very much um, taught by people who do a lot of flexible dieting. And 
I've, I've really pushed back against that now because it just doesn't work for me. Um, and I think it doesn't work mm. for a lot of people who I work with. So uh, I, I, I really like that analogy. The, so I think also you, your taste buds get adapted to like some of the food uh, which you end up eating, which is better for you as well. Like when I was younger in my 20s, I, I used to be really quite large. So when I was younger in my 20s, I hate the taste of vegetables. Now I love them. Mm. I can eat them pretty fine. The analogy that I use to my clients is, uh, is, is uh, it's kind of like um, sex. <laughs> and uh, if to get off, you need to get the nipple cramps out and everything like that, then regular vanilla sex is going to be really you know, mm. plain. Whereas if, <laughs> so in like food, if you're having just a lot of plain food all the time, you don't have these weekend refeeds and cheat meals and all that kind of stuff, then your regular food starts to taste better after a while and you, your taste buds start to normalize. Um, yeah, <laughs> a bit of a strange example, yeah. but there you go. <laughs> you, you can even see that in the, in neuroscientific research where you look at brain reward pathway activation. You can even see that if you have someone on a healthy diet, then the reward pathways don't light up as strongly anymore after junk food and they activate more after things like vegetable consumption. So, and if you, in just research where you just uh, assess subjective liking for foods, you also see that people start to like healthy foods more as they uh, become healthier and eat healthy over time. Uh, in fact, there have been numerous studies where they found that the most effective way to kill a craving is uh, to have the most strong restriction of it. Mm. So even diets, like really bad diets, like 600 calorie crash diets, are at least in the short term very effective to reduce food cravings. So that's definitely not an approach I would typically uh, recommend, but the idea of um, feeding a craving a little bit to satisfy it, that really doesn't work. That's a bit like um, you know, the approach to alcohol, where if you drink a lot the morning after, you're like, I'm never gonna drink alcohol again. And then two days after you're like, party, <laughs> you know? So it's a bit like that with food or with sex, actually for that matter. Like right after sex, you may say like, I'm, you know, I'm good. I can do without sex for a week now. <laughs> Next morning, eh, maybe not. Yeah, it's it's that Reddit no fap stuff, right? It's never leave that in Reddit. <laughs> um, I, lots of really interesting stuff from there. I think what you said about um, influencers and um, that being deceitful, I I totally agree. I, I think it really is, and I, I tend to think a lot of those may well have their own problems with food. That's why they're almost using their following as an outlet for their disorders, in in a sense, um, being you know sort of that into it. So. I, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah, with regards to the discussion on psychology of things and the research you pointed out there, with I find that stuff really interesting. I think we can get a lot for, on adherence from the research in psychology because I think mm -hmm. the research in nutrition is generally quite, well, our evidence-based nutrition field is generally quite limited in that area. So um, yeah, I really like what you've got to say about that. So in general, just to summarize, would you say that it's, you would, and going back to the previous point about the types of diets, would you generally go for the SKD or TKD approaches and just value consistency over? Um, TKD, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. Right. So I thought if now we get into the nitty gritty of um, setting up a contest prep diet. Um, now I've written down macros, but I'm not sure if that's a redundant question because I suppose what I have heard you say before is, um, Contest prep is, by its very definition, unsustainable. So you may well do some unsustainable approaches rather than just mm -hmm. getting down to, say, 10%. That's not, shouldn't be an unsustainable approach. So I guess what I'd ask is, um, are you going for macros and calories when you start the contest prep, assuming that the, the client should already have a good degree of going down, of, of like having good food choices and habits in place already? 
Um, or would this be the time you would start to initiate counting calories? Um, I guess, how would you set that up? And potentially, how would you set it up for somebody who's not actually got particularly great habits? You know, would you start to get them mm -hmm. to do that? I, I don't know. It's a broad question. Sorry. Yeah, I think for, for contest prep, you'll probably want to track macros. Um, and someone should have experience with that before you even consider going into contest prep. Um, if, if we're talking like eight month contest prep, then you may be at the point where you start at lip or with keto or something like semi at lip often works well, where you track protein and carbs and not total energy intake. Um, but then, you know, you do have to have a good mindset where you're thinking of restricting energy intake, not like, oh, so I can eat as much butter as I want, you know, then that's not gonna work. But um, if, if you, you can start off at lip and then over time you probably find that you'll, you'll need to restrict energy intake Otherwise, you're just going to overeat on, um, even if not butter, then, you know, avocado or something. So um, then typically in terms of macros, you're looking at something like protein, just sufficient, not too much. Uh, try to fit in as many carbs as possible, which, you know, 50 gram net carbs, I think a lot of people can actually do mm -hmm. uh, with like 30 of that pre and post workout. Um, and then fat fill up what many calories you have. That's typically the template for keto. Uh, still get your fiber in. And um, over time, you'll probably have to titrate down calorie intake as your weight decreases over the contest prep. And then in the last week, you have to consider if you want to do a carb load for the show. So um, just to summarize that, in terms of protein, I believe you go for a minimum of 1.8 grams per kilo uh, as, as a baseline. Yeah. Carbs, we say a max of 50 fat to suit. Now, the question then would be, what's the rate of loss? Like, what are we looking for? With, that will sort of deter almost be a proxy for um, calorie levels. So what, what are we looking for in terms of rate of loss? In contest prep, when you're super lean, uh, you're typically looking at maximum 0.7% body weight loss, 0.5 ideally, because uh, it's, you know, ideally you get as little weight loss as possible while getting to contest shape. So I think a lot of approaches that target certain, that really target a weight loss rate, uh, especially if it's like 1% or higher, uh, will cause excessive muscle loss. So um, I'm a big fan of taking contest prep very slow, especially for natural trainees that have their time, which is you, you should. I think most modern contest prep to pro levels, you're looking at six months often, even when you're like, you know, if you, you have abs and then contest prep, especially if it's your first time, uh, you're probably still looking at six months. Yeah. This, uh, the three month ID uh, is long gone because the days of Arnold when people are like, yeah, boy, you're, you're on stage because you have a good abs. Now it's more like, ah, I don't see your glute striations, like not so good. Totally. So um, now for bikini is a bit different, but for especially bodybuilding classes and stuff, you have to get hardcore lean these days. Um, yeah. Okay, great. And uh, just to round out that part of it, if, um, if we were coming from say a higher percentage body fat, let's say we are doing the eight month out, um, what would be the rate of loss getting down to say 12% or 10%? Yeah, then you can go higher. Basically, the higher in body fat you are, uh, the faster you can go. So typically, your weight loss rate should go like this. By the end, the later weeks, you're really looking at like the just the smallest amount of weight loss you can get by with while still seeing your skin fold calipers or whatever you're using uh, still decreasing week to week. Um, I do like to see week to week objective decreases in fat mass. I think a lot of approaches are like if you're at maintenance, you know, just keep at it for a while and see if it's you break through the plateau. Uh, I think that's typically a waste of time and you want to see consistent progression, but with the least weight loss needed to achieve that.
And then before that, you can actually go a bit faster, especially if you are, you know, um, you start off at 18% body fat as a guy, like barely visible abs. Uh, you can just maybe even get like 1% body weight loss for a couple of weeks. And in keto, you also have to consider that when you go into keto, the first week, you may get two kilos loss just from that, uh, that water loss from going into ketosis. Especially if you go from high carb energy surplus to energy deficit in keto, you may lose even four kilos uh, in a week. And that's mostly water. I, uh, I've been posting a lot about um, VLCD, the VLCD research, which is all very favorable towards uh, fast rates of weight loss for long-term success, at least in mm-hmm. the beginning of a diet. So I'm definitely well on board with that. And I think with your approach of keeping the diet mostly the same across the weight, you should be able to see some fairly consistent losses as long as your diet is set up right. You won't have the pulsatility, which makes the data really difficult mm-hmm. to manage. So that helps with that as well, which is good. Um, so... We've uh, covered so far sort of how we would set up a contest prep diet, or even going far back as say 20%, getting that down to um, 10% and then beyond from there. Um, I guess the next thing is, well, how would we, would, would there be anything different going down from um, say 10% down to contest prep from that phase relative to the previous phase? Or is it just essentially carrying on, but carrying on slower? Yeah, especially for a keto diet, I'd say it's uh, pretty stable because your calorie intakes is just going to cut down from fat. Like if you have higher carb, higher fat, and at some point you get into the balance where um, you have to consider where do you cut, you know? Like you want, you sort of want the carbs, you sort of want the fat as well for hormonal health and the like. Uh, you may want the protein too for satiety or uh, other reasons. And then um, you have to make more of a balancing act. And with keto, it's like protein is kept at the minimum optimum anyway. Uh, and then carbs basically too. So it's much more linear and simple. Just your fat intake is going to decrease. Um, theoretically, if you would get to super low calorie intake levels, you would actually have to still cut carbs or fat at some point. Um, then the keto is actually often the right approach, I would say, because if you go like very low fat, but not keto, uh, I think people often feel much worse than, you know, if you have to go very low carb, yeah. uh, then you might as well go keto. Because if, you, if your carb intake is like, for example, 80 grams a day, like net carb 80 grams, it's like double where you're, you're not keto adapted. You're not into, you don't get the appetite suppression and the like, but you also have a low carb intake. So then I'd say might as well go into keto at that point if you're not ready. That makes sense. Brilliant. Okay, awesome. So yeah, I think that's great. So it'll just be a case of playing around with the macros to ensure that you're staying in ketosis, that being the benefit of the appetite suppression so protein minimum levels and then playing around with fat intake uh, that makes sense okay great um so in terms of food choices how would you peer- firstly what are the food choices which you would you know typically go to and then how would you periodize that on the way down because i've heard you mention in another podcast that for example at 15 percent, certain things might be off the menu so how do you go about doing that managing that yeah and keto um i think a big mistake is that people um have a mind of a sort of a frame of reference of very different food choices compared to another diet. And it should actually be very similar. The only thing is that really changes the carbs. Um, Cause you're pretty much restricted to veggies. Um, I sometimes joke, if you don't like avocado, don't go keto because avocado is the perfect keto food. Okay. It's a great way to balance out your fatty acid profile in terms for a fat source. It's very satiating. Uh, it's very healthy provides vitamin K and a lot of nutrients that are, somewhat difficult to obtain in ketosis. So, you know, it's high fat, high fiber, a good way to get your fiber in. 
um, and it fits into a ketogenic diet really well. Uh, technically, it's a fruit. Uh, so combined with uh, more fatty coconut products and strawberries, that's pretty much your fruit. Um, nuts, macadamia nuts, are sort of a hidden gem. They are super low carb. Uh, but still, you know, nuts are not very satiating. So at the end of contest prep, I probably err more towards avocado, maybe eggs than uh, nuts. And, you know, you can fit other foods in there if you really want, but it's just going to eat up your net carbs really fast. And then mostly veggies. Um, spinach, green veggies are always good. Cauliflower, zucchini. Um, anything generally with two grams or even just one gram net carbs per 100 grams is golden because you can still eat a ton of food. Like a lot of people think, well, 10 gram net carbs, that's nothing. But if you have something with, you know, only two grams net carbs per hundred, um, you can actually eat a pound of food for those 10 gram net carbs. So that's a pound of food, say four times a, a day. You have two kilos of food just from your carbs alone. And then you have your protein sources and your fat. So keto really doesn't have to be, you know, like, uh, a slice of bacon, two eggs, uh, and then you know, uh, like uh, What's that? Two, 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 <laughs> two, uh, two, two slices of, of tomato or something, you know, that's how I think a lot of people approach it, like very low food volume, um, really no veggies and the like. And that's how you end up with nutrient deficiencies. You don't get the appetite suppression. Um, and you, you're probably just going to, you know, it's convenient in a sense, but if you want to get really lean, that's not a sustainable approach. Yeah, great. Excellent. Um, just a follow up question on that then. So um, there are certain foods which are highly satiating. But like, for example, um, certain dairies like um, quark and stuff like that, which are slightly mm -hmm. higher than on the carb approach. What's the break point then between pulling you out of ketosis, but actually being good for, um, you know, uh, keeping you full? From what I hear you, from, from what I, I hear you're saying, the actual benefit of being in ketosis is, is the appetite suppression. So we should aim to stay in ketosis. It's not just about um, high satiation foods. Is that right? Yeah. And at some point, you have to get, you have to consider uh, if you already maximizing sort of food volume and the like and fiber and you're in ketosis, but you're still super hungry, then you probably have to consider, um, won't I feel better on, you know, approach with more dairy and fruits and the like, because mm. uh, you may simply not be the type of person that actually responds well to ketosis in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, for dairy, I'd say in ketosis, you typically want to err more to the side of cheeses rather than yogurts, because those are essentially the same protein and calorie contents, but more fat, lower carb. Um, so like putin queza, uh, cottage cheese, uh, and there's like a Brazilian type of, it's kind of like cottage cheese. Uh, I've only seen it here in Brazil and it's like almost zero carb and 10 to 15 grams protein and then one or two grams um, fat. Nice. So amazing, amazing macros. Um, it's, it's not liquids anymore at all. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much it's more like a cheese. Um, you also have some actually white cheeses that are really good in terms of macros. Mm. Uh, so I'd urge more towards those. Uh, and as a bonus recipe tip, by the way, it, you can make a keto recipe with cacao powder, uh, sucralose or whatever other sweetener of choice that doesn't have carbs and uh, cottage cheese. If you have a cottage cheese that's like a little bit fat, a little bit more creamy, not like cheesy, uh, mix in the mash it like beat it so it, it flops up a little bit and then with the cacao and the sweetener it, it's basically chocolate mousse it's, it's really good and okay. it's super low calorie i like that i i, I got some uh, zero calorie syrup so i've been doing that in my cottage cheese as part of my keto experiment mm -hmm. so i like i like that i'll try that one as well <laughs> all right so um 
I suppose we've, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, um, but vegetable intake. Um, do you have any recommendation for amounts? Like I've been aiming for roughly 800 grams of vegetables or fibrous vegetables per day. So about 200 grams per meal. Um, mm -hmm. And if we could sort of clear up any misconceptions about veggies and keto, uh, we've already emphasized that they should definitely be a part of your keto approach. Um, any, any thoughts on that area? Yeah, pretty much the same as, as non-keto ideally, which means you're gonna have to consume a lot of carbs uh, as in veggies. Uh, when I say carbs and keto, we are pretty much talking veggies. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, 800 grams is actually, I think, the latest meta-analysis that was like really comprehensive, yeah. looked at the health benefits of fruits and vegetables combined, and found the benefits run up to about 900 grams per day. So 800, 900 is probably about maximum benefits. For strength training, you could even err higher. Uh, I often say, like, especially strength training male, you know, because um, that's whole population, including women and sanitary, most of them. Uh, you can easily go like kilo plus, but it, it depends on how much you like vegetables, if your digestion tolerates them, and um, you know, just priority for health and how much you really need for satiety. Like it's really not common, uh, not uncommon for many of my clients, especially as they get really lean and myself included, to have food volumes well upwards of two kilos a day. In fact, very few days go by that I don't eat at least two kilos of food. So um, I think it's just a really solid approach for, um, for appetite management and just to get in a, a ton of nutrients. Yeah, excellent. I agree. Um, so just moving on to fruits and keto, um, we've covered so far that the avocados and strawberries tend to be quite good options. Um, are there, is there room for anything else or... Are we really looking to minimize that again with that conversation about the breakpoint between staying in ketosis and appetite control? We'd rather just stay in ketosis and just sacrifice some of the fruits. Yeah, the others are much like the pancakes in another diet where they're like, you can fit them in, yeah. but you know, try it and then you'll probably see it's going to be pretty tricky. Even uh, beverages that have any, any net carbs at all, uh, sauces, already tricky. Uh, like it, it will be very restrictive once you really get down to um, contest prep and keto, which you know contest prep always is. Yeah. Even if you go high carb contest prep, uh, you probably still don't want to eat pancakes because you'll be starving. So yeah, don't listen to your local Instagram influencer about having <laughs> pancakes uh, pre-contest. So um, I guess we've we've covered quite a lot about setting up um, a keto diet. Um, we looked at macros. We've looked at how to progress the diet over time. Um, now taking out sort of certain food choices, et cetera, as we get closer. Um, I guess what I wanted to talk about the last couple of things is progressing and planning a prep over the week. So if we were to say, start a prep and then aim for say four months time, what are, what sort of break points are we looking at in terms of where do we want to be about a month out? Where do we want to be a couple of months out um, to ensure that we're going to step on stage looking looking well which i suppose the questions are, are relatively similar to what a regular prep would be like but just like to hear your thoughts i mean like general good rule of thumb is six months from lean to contest lean mm -hmm. um and ideally your um content you're in shape basically a month out that is a to account for unforeseen circumstances uh and b uh because it gives you some time to experiment with your peak week and dehydration and carb loading etc um so that you don't you know, you want to have those things trialed before you actually do them before your contest. So I think that's a, a good guideline. Uh, and at the very least, you know, two weeks out, so you can have one sort of trial peak week, a mock peak week, which I often call it, and then the actual 
uh, BigWig. Um, and it's good to do the calculations, like based on your current estimated body fat level, you can calculate what uh, amount of time you need given a certain weight loss rate uh, to get to contest uh, prep. And most people find that if you use somewhat more conservative numbers, that estimate's gonna be higher than what you thought, because it's gonna take longer, um, especially when you get to the really low body fat levels. Uh, you know, 15% to 10% is a whole different ball game than 10% to 5%. Definitely, absolutely. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, peak week. So um, there's, a, I get another high degree of variability here when it comes to strategies for peak week. Some people are saying that it just doesn't matter. And if you're lean enough, you're not going to hold water anyway. So you should just fill out. Mm -hmm. um, I've personally prepped people different ways. I've done peak week. I've also done just constant, uh, get, got them ready about a week prior. I just had them eating into the show. Myself, a couple of years ago, I did a peak week strategy um, and I was carb loading a couple of days prior to the contest and then pulling down um, just before, just to pull off some water, mm. all different strategies. What what do you think would work best with keto? Um, well, keto is, is kind of a, a sort of a, a safe B option. Like if you just stay keto, you'll look dry, like almost certainly, and you'll look pretty like steady. Like it's a good way to ensure you're going to look good on stage. If you're lean enough, you're big enough, you're, you're just going to be, you know, good. Not like optimal, fine-tuned, carb-loaded to the max, but like solid with very little risk. So for a lot of clients, especially women, bikini and the like, where it's not, you know, we carb-load them, do they really need that extra muscle mass? Is that going to make the difference? Well, I'd rather avoid them having a distended stomach rather than, you know, maximizing that little bit of deltfulness. And then I'll just say like, just stick with keto, no changes. You're not going to do anything. Uh, you're just going to diet into the show. No funny business. Also good for anxiety management and everything. For bodybuilding and the like, especially if someone needs the mass, uh, I will consider a carb load, but I also look at like how carb intolerant they were. For example, if they are in keto because they're really carb intolerant and they eat some carbs, they're really blowed up, they, um, they don't feel as good, then I'm like, mm, is it worth the risk? Um, like carb loading is one of the, the only aspects of the peak week that has scientific support, like direct scientific support. Okay. Uh, so you can gain, you know, two kilos of muscle that or like lean mass that looks like more than two kilos of muscle because it makes your muscles like full. It's like a balloon. Um, your, you can think of your muscle as a balloon. And when it's really full, like about to pop, that gives that really, yeah, well, full, it literally looks like the muscles are full and about to pop. And it also helps with vascularity which can make a big difference. Even if it's only two kilos, it looks more like five. So it is definitely worth considering. Water cutting, especially natural training, already in keto, you're, as you said, like how much water are you really still carrying? Uh, not much, unless you have some condition or anything. Um, so yeah, you can try it. Uh, I often do try it at least like one day, some dandelion, something mild, dandelion leaf. Uh, I'm a proponent of, because it's quite safe and still quite potent. And then see, you know, is there really a difference? Uh, if I don't really see much, I'll just skip it. Um, yeah, and then the carb load and the, the water cut are really the, the main things, I'd say, to consider. And then pumping up and stuff, uh, you do as normal. Um, you know, if you, yeah, just general guidelines. Things that needs to be bigger, you pump those up. Look at if it's a convex or, um, uh, or not muscle. And... Um, because like the quads, the abs, they don't lend themselves well to being pumped up typically. They just lose the definition. 
uh, rather biceps, delts, pretty much always. Like delts, always pop up your delts. Like there's basically nobody that gets too big delts in any class. Like, like it's sure there are exceptions, but it's 99%. Bigger delts is a, is a win. Brilliant. Um, on that note, you mentioned about the inherent ability to use carbs. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you does your ability to use carbs change across the time you're doing keto? Like, can you have a worsened ability to use carbs, or better? I, I, that's something I've, I've not found clear in research. Um, I don't think it changes much with carb vitamin intake, but it does improve with low body fat levels, because if there's one almost guaranteed way not to have type two diabetes, it's uh, get jack and ripped. Like <laughs> that's, that's literally pretty much the scenario. Like this is what doctors should be telling type two diabetics, like get jacked, get ripped. There is no chance in hell. You're still going to be carb intolerant, 5% body fat with huge bulging biceps Yeah. because your insulin sensitivity at that point is off the charts. Yeah. So you have to have a really, really strong genetic predisposition for carb intolerance to still be carb intolerant at the end of the peak week. But it happens and typically that small percentage of population is probably also the population that's more likely to be attracted to a keto diet to begin with. Yeah. That, that is quite very reassuring, I think, for people who are thinking about attempting a keto diet but have potentially read things which say you lose the ability to utilize carbs. Because I've, I've read mm -hmm. some literature on one side which says that, but then I've also read others which say essentially what you're saying, which is you actually, body fat is the prime determinant of, of, of carb utilization. Yeah. So that's really useful to know. Thank you for clearing that up. I think digestive wise, some, some people confuse digestive effects with like uh, biochemical effects. Like if you haven't had any carbs or like very few carbs for a long time uh, and you're suddenly gonna eat a ton of bananas and rice and everything, for example, gluten. Uh, the body's ability to handle gluten improves with gluten exposure. Yeah. Uh, and the same is holds true for lactose. So then if you suddenly eat a ton of those foods, especially for a carb load, then yeah, you may get super bloated and puffy. And also you're not used to looking bloated and puffy anymore when you're in keto. So the, the contrast is bigger. And then it's like people think they don't handle carbs as well. I think that's what usually happens. Okay, brilliant. Um, awesome. So that, thank you for clearing that up. Um, I think we've covered most things that I wanted to cover with regards to, to um, contest prep. So we've gone right through the whole gamut of talking about benefits. Um, Looking at how we have a hard stop in one minute, actually. Oh, brilliant! That's great. I want to ask you one more question. You mentioned a book three years ago that I will be done. Um, how is that going? It is done. Um, no I'm currently in the final stage of editing. I've had a few people do edits on it. I'm incorporating those now. Uh, I have a first book cover and should release it this year, but I'm not going to put an ETA on it before I can definitively promise it. Yes, um, but it's yeah, like I said, it's definitely coming. Brilliant. Well, I, I'm looking forward to that. And congratulations. That's fantastic. Uh, I've, I've loved hearing your thoughts on, on, on life and sustainability in general. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. So I will say, I won't keep you anymore. I will say thank you very much, Mena, for coming on. And um, My pleasure. really, really great speaking to you. Thank you so much. All right. Let me know when it's up and I'll be sure to share it.